0: everyone and welcome to our first PropTech panel for 2023. I'm Jennifer Harrison and I'm on Walla Medical Lands in Sydney and I'd like to pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm also the Vice President of the PropTech Association Australia. We are an industry body by PropTech for PropTech If you're not a member and you're interested to become a member, you can find out on our website, which is www.proptechassociation.com.au, how to become a member. And while you're there, please do sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter is the best way to be informed about the events that we have coming up over the year. This year, we're excited to be working with our foundation supporter and sponsor, Stone & Chalk, to offer more in-person, face-to-face events. Starting in Melbourne, on the 16th of February, we have a members meet-up, which will be sponsored by PEXA. We're also delighted that our foundation supporter, Ashurst, will be our principal supporter again of our two marquee events. And we've got the dates and venues confirmed for them as well. So our Top Tech Awards will be at the Fullerton Hotel in Sydney on the 19th of July, and our PropTech Forum will be at the New South Wales Teachers Federation in Surrey Hills on the 19th of October. In addition to Stone and Chalk, PEXA and Ashurst, our other sponsors that I'd like to acknowledge and thank are Raywa, MRI Software, WebIT, ListOnce and PropTrack. Now, it's the start of a new year and lots of people are setting goals. They're looking ahead to what the opportunities and challenges are that are likely to arise. So, I'm really happy that for our first panel in January, we're going to be looking ahead to 2023 and considering what prop techs need to know. We've got a fantastic panel of experts and I'd like to introduce them to you now. Our first guest is Julian Kesselman, who is Innovation Director at Taronga Ventures and Program Director at Real TechX. Hello, Julian. Thanks for being with us today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Jen. Thanks for the opportunity to join.
0: And where are you joining us from?
1: Uh, I'm joining from our offices down here in Barangaroo. So um, we've got a lovely uh, showcase space of some of our technologies that we invest in. So we'd, uh, we'd love to host some of your. Um, Association members here at some point it would be great.
0: That'd be great. Thank you. Yes. Um, our second guest today is Rebecca Cope. Rebecca is a partner in the digital economy team at Ashes, who are one of our very valued foundation supporters and sponsors. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us. How are you today?
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, everyone. And where are you joining us from? Uh, so I'm joining you from Sydney as well, um, and our offices are up in Martin Place.
0: And our third guest on the panel is Angus Moore, who's an economist at PropTrack, one of our other very valued sponsors at the PropTech Association. Hello, Angus. How are you today?
3: I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on today.
0: And where are you joining us from?
3: I'm rounding out the Sydney crew. So I'm uh, working from home, as you can maybe tell from my background, but I'm in Petersham in Sydney in the inner west.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Julian, let's come to you first. At most people in PropTech know the Real TechX Innovation Program. It's very prestigious and I know all of the previous cohorts speak amazingly about what value they got from it. The current program has an ESG focus and the themes of sustainability and ESG are very prominent globally. They're definitely going to continue to get corporate and institutional attention in 2023. My questions are, how does focusing on ESG drive the way we do innovation in the built environment? And I suppose another way to think about that is what comes into sharper focus when we take an ESG lens and what goes out of focus? And can you answer that with some examples, please? Yeah,
1: happy to. And thank you for your comments about the RealtyCax Innovation Programme. It's really uh, what we like to do at Taronga Ventures to try and give back to the Australian crop tech ecosystem uh, and and try and catalyze as much growth for, for the companies that we support as we can. Um, so ESG impact, which has been strategically placed above my shoulder, is the, the current thematic of the program and is really driven by the desire of our corporate partners to the program to keep moving the needle on their own ESG performance. So, uh, domestically, the groups uh, that are part of the program are groups like ISPT, DEXIS, uh, and vicinity centres, and there's also a number of uh, international groups that have portfolios here in Australia. And so, what we've seen is a strong focus in ESG by many of these major commercial REITs and owners uh, to improve um, the, their outcomes over the last 10 years, and, in fact, a lot of the the low-hanging fruit uh, within the ESG space has already been captured. And so, you know, often people think ESG and they think about uh, climate uh, and carbon reductions, and, of course, that's the central focus of our time. Uh, but, indeed, you know, the pathway towards decarbonization of buildings is now well and truly set uh, from a technology and a change perspective, and there's a whole spectrum of other ESG concerns that, uh, that both our owners and also uh, emerging prop techs should really be thinking about. So the things that come into sharper focus are really drilling down on the different subcomponents of ESG uh, and and looking at where can we make improvements around how uh, assets are being responsibly managed into the future. So from an environmental component, be, you know beyond carbon, it's things like improving uh, waste footprint, it's improving water, uh, and it's improving the internal environments where where we occupy within our assets. And when it comes down to to social, I think it's really. Uh, brings into sharper focus uh, a concern for all the different stakeholders in the value chain, not just the occupiers and investors, but really thinking about the employee experience or the community experience, or indeed all of the livelihoods of the people that, that um, deliver operating services to the built environment, so our cleaners uh, and, and all of the people staffing our, our retail um, assets. And so, it's thinking about what is their experience and how do we start to measure the impact of the initiatives that we put in place uh, upon them. I think what really you know comes into focus for the PropTech, so speaking to your members, um, is thinking about ESG in how you run your own businesses, right? So, what is responsible good governance when you're building a fast-growing uh, company? How do you start off building your own business with uh, diversity and inclusion in mind and building those early teams and, and even measuring your own sustainability footprint so you can uh, work with you know large owners with credibility? And say, you know, we've cleaned our house from an ESG perspective um, but before coming to support you with your own ESG outcomes. And maybe just to round out, you know, I think what comes out of focus is the, the traditional, um, you know, business case around implementing prop within major real estate portfolios. It's been uh, unabashedly uh, ROI driven. And of course, that doesn't tell the whole story. And so I think thinking about the full suite of outcomes, not just the financial, but how it impacts. Um, all of the different stakeholders, and of course, you know, the environment in which we exist, is um, is is I think, um, you know, a, a much more holistic way of thinking about the, the true business case and value case of of bringing ESG technologies forwards.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your comments there on um, how you know prop kind of get their house in order because I know some prop techs have a very clear mission in that the problem they're solving is an environmental problem or it is a social problem. Other prop techs, their mission isn't explicitly an ESG mission, but increasingly as they're going out for funding or entering for awards or seeking to go into acceleration programs, ESG keeps coming up and sometimes they struggle to know how to you know how to put some bullet points down on that. Um, outside of ESG, what else are you keeping an eye on in prop tech innovation? Are there some big technology and real estate industry trends that you're tracking, and why? And again, it would be great if you could include some specific examples.
1: Yeah, happy to. So, so there are some you know long-term macro trends that are that are coming through the industry and have been for about a decade now. And the most fundamental is. Uh, digitization and digitalization of, of processes. Uh, and, you know, that's a very long, uh, change process and transformation within the traditional real estate sector. And I think where we're at now is that there's been substantial inroads made into, uh, digitization and digitalization. And now the question is, well, how do we use that data for, um, you know, true, uh, evidence-led decision-making? So data-driven decision-making. And I think some of the examples, you know, we can point to from our own portfolio are a company not like Trendspec. So, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Trendspec, people on the call, what they provide is, uh, um, drone captured imagery of the exterior of an asset. Uh, but it's not actually the drones that is their technology. It's using the photos that have been captured by the drones to create a, a full 3D model of the asset. So that it can then be inspected for uh, asset uh, management, repairs and maintenance, and better capital planning. So it means no longer do you need to send somebody up to the roof of a um, industrial asset to look for cracks and corrosion and uh, and roof deflection. Um, you get a full three D model, uh, which is safer and provides um, millions of data points rather than those that can be simply captured on, the, on a clipboard. So, yeah.
0: I was going to say, look, not that I think. I think I'm right in saying the single biggest cause of death in in the real estate industry is a fall from height, whether that's in repairs and maintenance or construction. And if we don't have to put humans in harm's way because we can harness technology, then to me that that seems like a no-brainer.
1: I think that's exactly right. Wherever we can find ways to, to obviate those risks, and at the same time provide a much richer insight into you know the asset condition operations, that that's the real advantage that technology can provide. Um, maybe just to touch on one other major thematic, uh, which you know all major real estate owners are grappling with at the moment, is asset flexibility uh, and not having stranded assets. Uh, so you know what are we going to do? Um, with respect to um, reinventing the utility that offices provide, uh, and the continual evolution of, of, um, of retail spaces, uh, and those are not easy challenges to solve. Uh, you know, there's substantial capital considerations when it, when it comes to that. So, some of the technologies we've been looking at are: how do we uh, prototype effectively new forms of utility without making those major capital commitments? And another great Australian company that we've invested into called Space Cube, out of Melbourne provides uh, flat pack construction, uh, but for semi-permanent infrastructure. So uh, it's not your traditional DFMA um, to to build up a building, it's to build something which is temporary. And, you know, the kinds of use cases that that they're making are um, temporary hospitals for when a, uh, a ward is being upgraded and you need to provide continuous care you basically just build a hospital in the car park that sits adjacent and can continue to supply that. And I think these kinds of concepts, where they can be iteratively updated and rotated, give asset owners an opportunity to to experiment with that asset flexibility uh, and think about new form factors for for assets
0: into the future. I really like that. It's almost like the concept of a pop of, of like a pop up or or something like that. But but one other thing I know, like traditional construction isn't fast. And it's extremely wasteful in terms of, you know, what gets chucked out um, and, and taken to landfills. So I, I love the idea of playing with concepts of doing things faster and more flexibly.
1: Yeah. I mean, just, just to put some data to, to your point, so Space Cube built a two-storey hospital for Monash uh, in 16 hours. Uh, so that was in the early days of COVID when people didn't know how much uh, respiratory ward capacity that they would need. So, they erected this in 16 hours, um, put the services in over the next six days, uh, and then recycled 90% of the form factor. That hospital is now a community centre elsewhere.
0: That's fantastic. Do you see any major differences across the globe in how PropTech is evolving and maturing in different geographies?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we're fortunate enough to have a, a global uh, investor base and also a global portfolio as well. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen those relative differences come through both in the demand side and also the supply side. Uh, I had an opportunity to to go to uh, Europe and the Middle East uh, towards um, uh, the end of last year and and see, you know, what were the major drivers there. And, you know, Europe absolutely is being driven by ESG. Uh, and that, you know, comes right from a macro government level, but also from, you know, the very responsible capital providers. So all the major Dutch pension funds and the sovereign funds in the Nordics are really pushing, uh, ESG down onto their managers, which is then cascading all the way through down to uh, the technologies that we're seeing in that space. So we really see, um, you know, Europe is, is leading from an ESG perspective. What I think is you know interesting and and we're seeing quite a lot of in the US and this is also a bit of a sign of the times for the market is consolidation uh, within within the prop tech space. So you know as um, capital markets for for early stage venture companies have tightened up, uh, we're starting to see those prop techs that have been around for longer now um, with strong enough balance sheets and and strong enough capital behind them starting to acquire and 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 build out broader platforms. And you know, really good example of that in the U.S. is a company Measurable, uh, which provides you know ESG data for commercial real estate owners. Now, now buying smart buildings uh, platforms to, to integrate right down into the asset level. Mm. And I think you know, from from a an Asia and a Middle East perspective, um, it's really being driven by you know urbanization and construction. So you know, the interest in construction tech is is at an all time high, particularly in the Middle East. We've been following what's happening in, in Saudi, some phenomenal projects that are being built there, uh, and they're looking to, to build in a fundamentally more advanced way than they have historically. And so, you know, we, we really see all of these different pockets of drivers
0: reflecting the, the underlying markets. Mm. Are there any particular takeaways or lessons you think Aussie PropTechs can learn from that?
1: Yeah. So... So you know we're we're based in Sydney and Singapore. So we we look after the whole APAC region. And something you know even from the Singaporean companies that that I've seen a lot of is this mentality around being multi-market from day one. So um, rather than thinking about growing to capacity domestically and then where will I flip up to, it's about thinking about designing your product with um, that deployability across markets uh, right from the outset. And you know that that's very true in MENA uh and also very true in Europe. And you know, I think um we have a, a great and stable proving ground to for Aussie Proptex to, to build up their company before thinking about do I flip up to Asia or the US or, or Europe? Uh but I think you know, starting with that mentality, um definitely from um probably the US is is a little bit more domestically driven, but I think all of those other major regions uh lead with that mentality and that at least for us as as a multi-market investor, makes them much, much more attractive for capital uh, and being able to
0: deploy across global asset owners. Hmm. Okay, and final question. If you had to make a prediction, uh, what do you see as the biggest opportunity and also what do you see as the biggest challenge lying ahead for PropTechs in 2023?
1: Yeah. Look, I think uh, predictions are always risky and particularly in the venture capital market. It's incredibly dynamic. And, and yeah, for, um, for the people on the call that have been following, it, it's, it's seen a huge contraction over the last six months and that's happened very, very quickly. And so, um, you know, the biggest challenge I think facing most prop techs today is around, um, you know, capital availability. So whereas, you know, six to 12 months, uh, there, there seems to be an endless stream of capital. Uh, coming in, uh, and also this urgency of, of venture firms to deploy, um, has, you know, really led to, you know, the belief or the assumption that we, we, you know, the next funding horizon will, will surely be 18 months away and it won't be too much of a struggle to get to. And I think, you know, we, uh, at Jeronga Ventures have tried not to, um, get too caught up in the, in that hype cycle. And we've, you know, tried to always focus on fundamentals of, of businesses. Because ultimately, for us, we're trying to invest in technologies to support um, major real estate owners who want to make sure those companies are around for for years to come. And so, I think the challenge and the opportunity go hand in glove that capital is harder to get. And so, the opportunity is really to focus back on just core business disciplines. So, making sure that you're driving towards positive unit economics. In your business, you know, sensible capital um, and and cost controls around how you hire, and and you know, just having more accurate forecasting rather than growth at all costs. Um, because you know, um, what you know, we're looking for now is really good stewards of capital, and and I think that these kind of tight operating environments do help to to sharpen founders' focuses on just building strong and resilient businesses for the long term.
0: Thank you so much for all of those comments, Julian. I have popped into the chat the link. Uh, applications for the 2023 cohort for Real TechX uh, have been open now for about a week. I think Is that, is that right? Um, yep. It's definitely still open, so definitely a good opportunity for people to go and find out what, um, what that's about and um, apply. Thanks so much, Jen. Okay, Rebecca, let's talk first of all about data. Now a few years ago data was the new oil and then in 2022 we had a couple of high-profile data breaches, most obviously Optus and Medibank, but in the property space we had a data breach at Harcourts in Melbourne. As a result we have the federal government talking about higher penalties and New South Wales Minister Victor Dominello has started to shine a spotlight on the kind of data that is collected by real estate agents and landlords. Um, what challenges do you think PropTech can expect to face from a legal and regulatory perspective in the coming years?
2: Thanks, Jen. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's been a definitely a change in the public perception of how data is managed and what the risk is about giving your personal information to an entity, including you know, those active in the prop tech market. Um, I'm going to steal an uh, analogy that one of my colleagues used, which was you know, data used to be seen as gold and now it's more like uranium. So it's still incredibly valuable, but you've got to treat it in the right way. Otherwise, it's going to blow up in your face. So I think what we've seen um, as a result of the media attention and the political attention that were paid to the two big data breaches last year, as well as, as you mentioned, the, um, the Harcourts incident, There is a raft of new legislation heading our way on the privacy front. Um, The higher penalties were already instituted quite quickly last year by the federal government. So, if you are subject to the Privacy Act, you're now facing maximum penalties of the greater of $50 times the benefit of the value that you might derive from your breach, or 30% uh, of turnover. So, it can be quite uh, a large penalty hanging over um, those potential breaches. I think the um, approach that Minister Dominello was flagging for the rental market um, is really being driven by the fact that the Privacy Act really kicks in when you've got $3 million or more of revenue. So, it does mean that a lot of the smaller businesses are not subject to the Privacy Act. And, of course, in the real estate area, there are quite a lot of smaller businesses who may not be meeting that um. Over threshold, but who get access to a lot of um, personal information through the the rental application process. So, as I understand it, the idea of that regulation would be to fill that hole um, and it would either be consistent with the Privacy Act's um, requirements or sort of apply to you when you're not also subject uh, to the Privacy Act. So, I think we're going to see more stringent regulations coming our way. We're going to see way more active regulators in this space. Um, so the OAIC has already been out there doing quite a lot and they are quite busy. They've received additional uh, Commonwealth funding to help them on that front. And um, my experience uh, uh, being on the, the legal side of a few of those large um, data breach matters last year is that um, it's not just the information um, commissioner who's going to be interested in data breaches. So any other regulatory body that you may be um, a part so, you may be subject to is likely to want to come uh, and have a peek around as well if there, if you're in a data breach territory. So, it's it's going to be very important, I think, for um, people who are dealing with data, in particular personal information, to really be across what all of your compliance obligations are um, and where those questions might be coming from if, if there is um, an incident. Uh, of other themes related to data, but not specific to sort of the cyber data breach risk. Um, I think AI regulation is an interesting one. Um, we saw the EU take uh, quite a number of steps forward last year, uh, in that respect. And my, my personal sort of prediction, I know you're asking Julian for his <laughs> earlier on, um, is that basically I think that AI regulation is likely to be treated at the same way as the GDPR was when it first came in. So the GDPR, that's the data uh, protection regulation over in the EU, a lot of um, companies who operate internationally have just taken that as a baseline. And now it's sort of basically applied because, you you know, if you're designing a product that's going to be used across multiple jurisdictions, a lot of those products are designed um to have those GDPR requirements in mind. And I think the AI regulation is likely to become something quite similar. So although it wouldn't apply directly to Australians, I think it's probably going to end up applying um, by default. Uh, and the final thing I just want to flag on the data side of things um, is the consumer data, right? So yeah. it's been around for a little while now. It's uh, The banks are well across it. The energy companies are going through the pain at the moment and telco is just about to jump in. Um, But the really interesting developments that they're uh, making in the banking sector at the moment is they're moving into a new phase um, called action initiation. So basically what that means is instead of just getting read access to data, you can actually get write access, which I think is going to really open up um, a new category of innovation. And it's possibly something that the prop tech market will be involved in as well because it enables them to participate in things like mortgages and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think there's there's some... Uh, interesting opportunities arising out of uh, data and its regulation, but also a lot of challenges.
0: Yeah, and just, you mentioned the consumer data right there. I think there are some really interesting intersections between, you know, banking and real estate and insurance and something like the consumer data right gives us a a place where we can explore some of those um, crossovers more more directly. Yeah. Um, You were talking just a little bit there about AI Yes. And I know ChatGPT and other generative tools, they're the new cool toys. Lots of people are generating, you know, haikus and um, yes. blogs and things like that and sharing the output on social media. But, and it's, it's very cool tech. But from a legal perspective, what are the issues that people need to be aware of there in terms of, you know, IP protection, infringement, privacy and other matters?
2: Yeah so um maybe just firstly like at GPT it is cool it's getting a lot of attention um, I know maybe a lot of people on the call today may have played around with it it's quite interesting. Um I would say though it's not really a sea change at least not from a legal perspective in terms of uh, how you know laws have been applying to AI and AI adjacent to technology previously so you know it is a generative AI tool but it is trained on the data that it's fed, like most AI tools are. Um, and it's also, um, you know, it's natural language processing technology, which we have had around for quite a while. Um, people might remember Microsoft's attempts quite a few years ago now of Tay, the chatbot, who uh, learned via Twitter and then immediately became racist and sexist. Um, so it's kind you of a You learned to bit,
0: swear pretty quickly. Yeah, it? yeah, it yeah, Something yeah. like so, 10, 12 minutes in, it was getting into explosives
2: exactly exactly so a version of that technology has been around for a while i understand that gpt um has got a, a moderation element to it to try and prevent that sort of thing from happening although apparently there's been some successful workarounds um already tried to put in place so um but from a, a legal perspective there's a few things that we need to think about when we're talking about AI. And the first one is really about that learning phase. So AI needs to ingest data in order to in order to learn. Um, but if you're the one who's using the AI, you really need to make sure that you've got the right that you need to have in order to use the data in that way. So, in particular, you've got to be really careful around any regulated data, so any personal information. You know, Do uh, the people who've provided that information know that it's being used in this way? Have they provided their consent for it to be used in that way? And even uh, data that might not be regulated, but perhaps that you've uh obtained under a contract, you know, making sure that you've got the rights um to use that data in the way that you're intending to use it. Um and and also working out what the IP arrangements might be in relation to the output um, of your, your AI machine. Um so I think the on the IP side of things, there's a couple of ways in which you can try and um protect. AI creations. So, obviously, at the moment, um, an AI is not classified as a legal person. So, although there have been a number of attempts to get the AI uh, a right to own its uh, its output, um, those haven't quite gotten up as yet. So, generally, it's still going to be the creators of the AI that will own the output. But again, you've got to be careful with the input. So, for example, you've got all these AIs that are drawing on existing images, for example, and then, you know, squishing them together to create something funny. Um, you've got to make sure that the content that's going in, you've got the license rights in respect of how you're using that content and how it's, it's sort of generating that output. Um, and in terms of protecting your AI, sorry, your IP in AI, um, generally it's going to fall into either patent or copyright law. Um, but basically the best way to sort of protect your IP in AI is actually trade secrets. So just making sure that you've got all of your confidentiality agreements in place, make sure that you've got all of your IP transfers in place so that the contractors who worked on it have given their IP to the, the company rather than um, taking it with them when they go. Um, and just, yes, making sure that you, you design it in such a way that it's not very obvious how to reverse engineer uh, what you've done from the outside. Um, and just a couple of other things to keep an eye out for uh, if you're using open source code uh, in trying to create the AI, just keeping an eye out for like copy left terms in that source code, which may require you to then share your IP um, as a result. Uh, And yeah, otherwise just making sure everything that goes in, you've got the rights to to use. Mm, Yeah,
0: it's certainly going to be uh, an interesting space to, to to keep watching and keep being mindful of. And as Julian foreshadowed, the capital raising environment now is a bit different. And I'm just mm. wondering at Ashurst, since you're involved as lawyers documenting a lot of capital raising transactions and also a lot of MA deals, mm. what are you seeing in due diligence that's coming up when PropTechs are raising capital or doing MA? Is there anything PropTechs should be aware of and seeking to head off in terms of potential roadblocks?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think conveniently that builds on the answers to my, the last two questions. Um, so essentially, uh, you know, I was talking about data, uh, being uranium. A lot of the time investors are really making sure, really wanting to make sure that you have your compliance, um, house in order. So, uh, there is often a focus on privacy and seeing whether or not the, um, the tech has been set up, uh, with privacy by design in mind. So even though your startup may not be subject to the Privacy Act at the time that you start, because you might not have met that $3 million threshold as yet, um, a lot of the time, prospective investors are investing because they want you to make more than $3 million and they want to make sure that what you've designed is something that can be used at that scale. Uh, So quite often, uh, even if there's not a current compliance risk, we will be asked to look into, well, what if they were subject to the Privacy Act? What does that look like? Um, and similarly, when we're talking about data flows, you know, if, if there is a data pool that's being used, we often get asked to look into the contracts that might sit behind how that data was collected and just making sure that, uh, you know, the value that investors see in your um, product or in your technology is actually your value and then it's something that you either own or have the right license, right, in respect of um, such that you know, everyone can extract value from your company moving forward. Um also, just on the compliance side, sometimes like uh spam and direct marketing issues come up as well, so investors are always sort of interested to know if you've had any complaints um or it's if, just if please explain notices on that front and the second big category is really your i p ownership um so to the extent that you're creating something novel uh, in a technology, we really do a lot of investigation around who owns the IP, Well, what IP is there for starters, who owns the IP. Um, quite often when you're looking at the smaller startups, that's about looking at, um perhaps founders who've been contributing their IP to the creation of a technology. And you know, where does that IP sit now? Is it still with the individual? Is it in a company? Is there any sort of cleaning up that might need to happen there to make sure that it, once again that value is is in the entity that's being invested in? Um, and also looking obviously at any contractors who may have contributed and making sure that they've got the right um assignment provisions in their contracts as well.
0: Well, good stuff. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And I've just shared in the chat, Ashurst uh, posted on their blog a couple of weeks ago, a very interesting blog about tech and connectivity predictions for 2023. Um, I've just put the link to that in the chat. Um, I got all that out of it. I'd recommend other people to go and take a look at it. Thank you. Angus, let's have a little bit of a talk about what's happening out there in the world of economics. We've um, come out of an interesting 2022, and uh, I'll pop into the chat in just a minute. PropTrack have published the December listings report. Um, Coming out of 2022 and going into 2023, can you just briefly catch us up with what's been happening coming out of 2022 and what are the big things we need to be aware of going into 2023? Yeah,
3: it's, it's a great question. And I might actually wind back even a year further and just kind of put us in frame of where we were in 2021. Because it's it was a pretty stark year in property markets. We saw prices across 2021 grow at the third fastest rate across that one year in 140 years. So basically, as long as we have records of prices in Australia, it was the third fastest and the fastest since basically 1990. So it was a extremely brisk year that was accompanied by low interest rates and extremely hot property market conditions you know spring in 2021 uh, was very very busy that flowed through into the start of 2022 we still saw pretty strong market conditions through early 2022 then the rba started raising interest rates and you know we had the third fastest price growth in 140 years in 2021 in 2022 we saw some of the sharpest increase in mortgage rates we've seen since The 1990s, if not longer, depending on how you measure, again, it's surprisingly hard to measure things further back in time. What that's meant is we've seen the market call pretty quickly. Activity and prices have both really come off across the back half of 2022. Prices nationally are down 4.3%, according to the PropTrack Home Price Index. They're off by more than that in Sydney and Melbourne. Places like Adelaide and Brisbane are holding up a little bit better, but but even there we're seeing prices fall as well. So what that means is that going into 2023, we've got a pretty cool market at the moment, and we're probably expecting that to continue for at least a little while. We're expecting prices will continue to decline through much of 2023, in part because well we've seen prices down 4.3 percent. That Really hasn't fully reflected the impact of those big increase, interest rate increases we saw last year, and the fact we'll probably see more of those this year.
0: Mm. Yeah. So coming on to interest rates, what is your house view on what the RBA is likely to do in 2023?
3: Yeah, it's it's certainly the question on everyone's mind, and uh, you know, as as has been alluded, there's no way to be wrong quicker than to make a prediction about interest rates, or prediction about anything in property, I suppose, but but interest rates in particular, perhaps. Um, We're expecting there'll be probably two more interest rate rises across sort of the first half of this year. The exact timing probably doesn't matter too much and will depend a bit on the flow of data that the RBA is looking at. But we think there'll probably be another two. That's broadly speaking what's being priced in in markets at the moment. But a lot of it's really going to depend on what happens to inflation. Looks like 2022 was probably the worst of inflation and things will probably get better this year. We're going to have data out tomorrow on what happened in the December quarter. So I can be wrong in record time, less than 24 hours, which I guess goes hand in hand with being an economist. But uh, if we see inflation pressures start to ease, and there are some promising signs there, you know, certainly in the US, inflation looks like it's coming off. There are some signs in domestic data here in Australia that we might be kind of behind the worst of it in the late last year. If that's the case, we'll probably not see a lot more out of the RBA, one or two. But if inflation's a bit more entrenched, we might have to see more interest rate increases.
0: So what does that mean for, um, say, property developers? And also, you know, construction, because construction have been faced with global supply chain shortages, uh, very tight labour markets, skill shortages. Their cost of funding is going up as well. We've got this massive pipeline of homes we know we have to build because we've got a national housing shortage and rental crisis, the government announced in the budget last uh, last year a target of building a million new homes from 2024. And I know a lot of superannuation funds, because they're that patient capital with that long-term horizon, they're looking a lot now at build to rent. I'm just curious, how are we going to build all of this housing? It's a great question. You know, what are are the challenges from an economic perspective that are going to have to be, you know, overcome to do that?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of challenges for the construction sector at the moment. And again, you know, maybe to put it in some context, it's useful to wind back a couple years. And we saw a huge surge in approvals and commencements of detached houses through 2020 and 2021, in part just due to low interest rates. You know, we know that residential construction is One of the sectors most responsive to low interest rates in terms of economic activity. So that was broadly as expected, and in part what the RBA was hoping to achieve. But it was also due to Home Builder, which made building detached houses very attractive. What that meant is we had this huge surge in the number of homes that started to be constructed, but we actually haven't been finishing them at a pace any quicker than we were pre pandemic. And what that means is that the number of homes under construction has gone from something like 50 to 60,000 pre pandemic detached houses, I should say under construction at any given time to more than 100,000 today. So, there's this huge increase of work that's yet to be completed. And a big part of why that's happened is that it's just taking longer to build detached houses. Detached houses typically take something like six to nine months. You know, obviously, it depends on the house, but broadly speaking, that's blown out to over a year. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. Lost days due to sickness is part of it. Supply chains is a really big part of it. It's been hard to get raw materials. And we can talk about that in a second as well. But also weather has been a part of it in in Sydney and Brisbane as well, which is, you know, maybe a bit less of a, a, an economic driven uh, factor. What that means is that we're just not completing those homes. And so, that build time has blown out and the pipeline has, has increased a lot. Part of that and, you know, as I mentioned before, part of that is that we've seen massive increase in cost for builders. So, to build a detached house, it's cost something like 20% more than it did a year ago. And that's across a broad range of inputs from, you know, timber to steel to electrical appliances. So, it's just become very challenging to, to build a home at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, I know just in my own little suburb of Sydney, uh, I live in a, a, a suburb where most of the original houses were built in the 1960s, so most people like to do a knockdown rebuild at some, at some point. Uh, I know just anecdotally, just down the street from me, there's a house where they demolished in January last year and as of today, they have a concrete slab and a timber frame and that is all they have. They have no walls, they have no roof and that family has been paying rent and a mortgage now for over a year and their resilience and ability to continue to do that, I I think they're starting to get a little bit worried and I just know anecdotally it seems there's lots of construction sites Right. So the construction is starting, but yeah, it's 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 not finishing. So I mean what what do we do we need more immigration? Do we need more policies? Do we need to get people out of out of maybe out of tech and into the trades? How do we combat some of this?
3: Yeah, it's that's a very difficult question. Um you know, part of it will fade. You know, those supply chain disruptions are temporary and you know, there are signs that that's probably behind us or at least the worst of it is behind us. You know, if you look at indexes of global shipping costs, those were extremely high through a lot of last year and they've come not all the way back but back to more normal levels today. So some of that will dissipate. You know, likewise weather is hopefully. I really hope Sydney's summer this year for those in Sydney has been pretty terrible. Hopefully, that's behind us as well for a variety of reasons, but it will help construction as well. In terms of the labour force, you know, it is just very difficult to get labour at the moment. The unemployment rate sitting around multi-decade lows um, and has been there for months. And so, it's just extremely difficult to get labour of really any type. You know, this is not unique to the construction sector. I'm sure the tech sector is feeling the pinch
0: yeah, tech, as much. Is, you know, if you're a software developer, you um, Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I I even know, it's right, it's right across the board, you know, people who need, um, they need salespeople, marketing people, they need
3: Yeah, so, migration will help with that to some extent, you know, bringing a little bit extra labour supply in, but the evidence is that, in aggregate, it probably doesn't make a massive difference, because, of course, you know, those new migrants also spend money and create demand for jobs, and those two things, broadly speaking, offset, you know, it's a controversial literature, but broadly speaking, that's where the consensus is. So, Part of it is just that we will see the unemployment rate come up a bit over the next 12 to 18 months as the RBA slows the economy. That's why they're raising interest rates. They're trying to take uh, take a bit of the heat out of the economy. That will help to some extent with labour availability, but it is just very challenging across the board at the moment.
0: And What do you see happening outside of residential? Uh, what about the retail space and the commercial space? What are some of the things that are going to be impacting those sectors of real estate?
3: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting space. And, you know, one, I mean, we're seeing it in Resi as well, but one where the the kind of hangover from COVID and the, the shift that we saw in terms of the way that people live is, is still kind of having effects and will continue to have effects. So, you know, we're continuing to see retail in um, suburban areas and large format retail do pretty well, while CBD retail remains fairly soft. There's still enormous demand for industrial, particularly warehouse, um, and it's extremely difficult to get a hold of those assets, even though lots of people want them, which again is consistent with not just COVID, but the broader trend towards e-commerce and delivery. But COVID really accelerated that. You know, Estimates are it brought forward probably two to three years worth of that transition in the space of months as a result of everyone being stuck at home and so getting everything delivered instead. So those are really going to be the strong assets in that high interest rate environment. And, you know, with funding costs becoming particularly uh, challenging for many investors, we are also starting to see demand or continuing to see demand. I should say that they've, they've been pretty hot assets for a while, very stable assets like child care and health, um, you know, those performed very well through the pandemic. They continue to be in high demand.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, It's fascinating, Angus. We could probably talk all day. Um, I'm just going, just getting a little bit conscious of time. If you are um, wanting to ask any of the panel a question, uh, please you can use the Q and A function or pop a comment into that. Um, Angus while I've still got you can you talk a little bit please about people coming off fixed rate mortgages because that's one of the things people have been saying that we've been a little bit insulated maybe from the hiking phase that the RBA entered last year because a lot of people had fixed rate mortgages obviously as they come up for refinancing they might um, find that you know those interest rates hit their hip pocket a bit more what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, it's going to be a super interesting space to watch, um, potentially for PropTex as well. Um, the big background here is that you know, fixed rates in Australia have tended to not be a large share of new mortgage lending. Australia largely lends on a variable basis. But during the pandemic, we saw nearly one in every two new mortgages going on to fixed rates because they were just more attractive. You know, fixed rates were actually lower than variable rates for a lot of lenders. And so people obviously took advantage of that, myself included, very fortunately. Um, that's got two implications. One, as you say, we haven't, a lot of people just haven't seen their mortgage costs increase yet. So there's probably a bit more delay in the monetary policy transmission in, in terms of, you know, how far the RBA is raised and that actually flowing through to economic activity. But the other impact is that we're going to see a lot of people looking to refinance in 2023. It's going to be a lot of people rolling off their, um, their fixed rates in sort of the June and September quarters of this year. RBA analysis suggests it's it's something like one in 20 um, fixed rates, currently outstanding, will be rolling off every month through the middle of this year. So there's gonna be a big, it's it's sometimes called the fixed rate cliff, which you know everyone loves a good headline. I think that's maybe a little overdrawn, but th- there will be a lot of people rolling off and a lot of people looking to refinance. And the interesting part about that is that a lot of people are gonna to struggle to refinance for two reasons. For some people, prices have fallen, and so their LVRs will have risen, and so they may actually struggle to meet their original 80% LVR and may have to get LMI if they want to refinance, which is obviously pretty unattractive for a lot of people. The other thing is serviceability is going to be really hard to, uh, to meet now. Borrowing capacities have fallen by something like a quarter, so even people that didn't borrow at their maximum may now find that they can't borrow enough to refinance if they were to do a full serviceability assessment. And that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for kind of alternative lenders that are prepared to make those sort of serviceability exceptions. Obviously, those are things that banking regulators tend to frown upon. But, you know, my view is they're not new risk because they are existing borrowers. So, you know, from a system perspective, maybe not from an individual institution, but from a system perspective, that's not new risk being added to the system. It's just... offering a more attractive package to that borrower. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities and potentially risks in the refinancing space. And we are already seeing that refinancing is already really hot. We don't get a lot of data on internal refinancing, but external refinancing, people changing banks is about twice what it was pre-pandemic at the moment. And and that'll probably continue to increase across this year as people roll off those fixed rates.
0: Yeah, I've seen a rough rule of thumb that something like a 1% increase in interest rates decreases affordability by something like
3: 10%. Yeah, that, that, that's a fairly good rule of thumb to use. It's it's in that order in terms of your maximum borrowing capacity. So, you know, when banks extend a serviceability assessment on a new loan, they, add, they look at your current mortgage rate and add a buffer. It used to be 2.5%, it's currently 3%. The RBA has raised interest rates by that. So, you know, we've blown through that buffer. That buffer is intended to provide a way to, to kind of look through interest at increases in interest rates. Uh, it, as it turns out, that 3% wasn't sufficient for this particularly sharp hiking cycle, though. In general, it would be.
0: And, Angus, so questions come up um, on the future of work and the impact of working from home and hybrid, a hybrid workforce on. CBD office buildings. Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the answer is we don't know, uh, which is a terrible answer and the one that you always get from an economist because we're infuriating to ask questions of. But I think we don't know how it's going to play out yet. Some of that shift that happened looks to be permanent. You know, I'm working from home today in a way that I didn't in 2019. So to some extent that reduces the demand for office, but there is actually more office space being used today than there was pre-pandemic. So it's not as if it's completely evaporated. It's just that we're often using it in different places and in different ways. And so how that plays out, I think is gonna be really interesting to watch. I don't have the answer though, unfortunately.
0: Um, Like I said, if you do have a question for the panel, please do pop it into the Q&A, or if you've got any comments, pop it into the chat. Um, Angus, while we've still got you, I know uh, New South Wales government, we've got the date. New South Wales has a fixed four-year term, so we have to have an election. It's coming up at the end of March. Uh, given the housing affordability and rental crisis, that's definitely going to be, I think, on the political agenda. One thing that has been proposed is, for example, could we be more flexible on stamp duty? And would that help first home buyers get into the market? I know you've published a blog on that recently, which I'll go and share. But I'm wondering if you could just um, hit the highlights from that for people. What are your key takeaways after doing your analysis on that?
3: Yeah, certainly. Um, it's a very interesting area. Stamp duty is one of those taxes that, as economists, we're sort of almost duty bound to dislike for a variety of reasons. But you know, for first home buyers. It is a really big impost for many first time buyers, not all, but, but for many, saving up the 20% deposit is the constraint on getting into the housing market. And in fact, many don't meet that 80 LVR. You know, the, the vast majority don't actually make it to 80. So adding an extra 10 to $100,000 in stamp duty, depending on the cost of the home you're buying is an enormous extra impost that adds months to years worth of extra saving necessary and that's why most states not all but most states have concessions for first home buyers that help you know we we kind of acknowledge that it is an enormous impost on first home buyers and and have ways around it but those are i think at best kind of stopgap solutions and really a better long term solution would be looking to reduce stamp duty broadly because it's not just first home buyers that are affected by stamp duty it's it's everyone it, the reason economists dislike it so much is it acts as a tax on moving home and a very significant tax, you know, tens of thousands to even, you know, hundreds of thousands if you're looking at expensive homes. And that means people stay too long in homes that don't suit them. You know, they're too small, they're too big, they're not near where they work or near where, you know, their kids' schools are. And that means that we're kind of leaving money on the table in terms of both how we're using our housing stock and in terms of labor supply because people aren't living near where jobs are. So reducing stamp duty, replacing it with better forms of taxation would be a boon not just for first home buyers but for kind of the housing market and housing affordability broadly.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all that. Well, I think probably, oh, I think someone just popped a question in, oh, for Julian. Um, I I think you maybe commented on this a little bit earlier. Um, Oh, okay, I think maybe the question is, do you see any particular opportunities for Aussie prop techs to export and go, go across the globe? Yeah, there are certain um,
1: spaces where uh, Australian real estate tech um, is, uh, you know, I think leading relative to other markets. Construction tech is quite an interesting one. Um, given, you know, we're, we're such a highly regulated environment and, you know, um, particularly for the technology that's being developed for the enterprise space. Um, you've got institutional clients demanding, you know, very high standards of delivery, um, relative to other markets, uh, Australia. Um, it's, it's the, the, regulatory framework and requirements that actually lift the game of, of our technologies. And so, you know, I really see a lot of, um, Australian construction tech companies as being, you know, very exportable. Uh, and I think, you know, what, What's interesting about those kinds of technologies is that um, to my earlier point, they are often multi-market ready uh, in terms of um, if it's if it's hardware, um, physics is the same here as it is anywhere else in the globe. Right. So in, in some instances, it's it's you know more readily transportable. And so I think you know that that's probably one um particular space where you know we we have an edge. Uh and I think, you know, from, from a market entry strategy perspective. We find a lot of our portfolio that comes out of Australia. will look for um, like markets with you know similar um, regulatory rate regimes or um, or capital structures as well. So we see a lot of companies flipping up into the US, which is the tr- traditional pathway for for all Australian technologies. Um, but you know more so into into the UK for a real estate technology perspective and Singapore. Um, but before then, moving you know using those as landing pads to move into other jurisdictions.
0: Yeah, I've got a um I've got a little bit of a, a personal soft spot for for con tech. Uh, I'm hoping later in the year to have a panel um and do a bit more promotion of con of contech. Uh, and I think it's it's I mean it's also going to be very interesting, I think, this year to see how prop tech matures in terms of what we're talking about. Because in the last few years we've been talking about a lot of prop techs that serve the resi industry. And maybe it's it's you know it's time now um to 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 talk about some of the other prop techs, um, you know, in architecture, as you've mentioned, Julian Digital Twins, uh, construction and those intersections that um, I I also personally love with lending and insurance. But um, I think think we've come out of time, which means, um, Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Could you please quickly tell people where can they go for more information about Toronga Ventures, I have put the link for Real Tech X in the chat. And how can people connect? What's the best way if people want to reach out and connect with you personally?
1: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So um, the, the links you provide in the chat are the right ones. So go to tarongagroup.com forward slash Real Tech X. Uh, and that's um, the innovation programs platform that, that runs ESG Impact. Or otherwise, I'd be more than happy to, to connect with your members directly on LinkedIn, probably the easiest way.
0: Lovely. Um, Rebecca, well, thank you again so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Pleasure. Uh, what is the best way for people to find out more about Asherst, also more about your particular team, the digital economy team, and if people would like to connect with you personally, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: So, yeah, again, com should have all of your information about um, me and my team. Um, but, yeah, again, if you would like to get in contact Um, My email is on the uh, Ashurst website or feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. Maybe we can try and keep the lights on (laughs) next
0: time. Thank you, Rebecca, and uh, thank you again to Ashurst for being one of our wonderful foundation supporters and sponsors. Um, Angus, uh, what is the best way for people to find out more about PropTrack and also to connect with you personally?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you very much for having me and, and listening to me rant about the economy for 15 minutes. Um, so our website's proptrack.com.au. That's the best place to find all about, found out all about PropTrack. track. Um, you can also find all of our authored content and op eds there. If you click on the bit that says insights up the top and you can read more about my views on stamp duty or the like. Um, and we also have a Twitter um, on, at PropTrack um, where you can see all our articles as well. Um, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn is probably best as well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much to everyone who's joined us. Uh, I think that's been a really good brain food, really good meaty um, first panel to get us going for 2023. If you're not following us on LinkedIn or Instagram, please do. That's a great way to stay in touch with us and find out about our events. And as I said before, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, if you pop over to www.proptechassociation.com, com.au. You don't need to be a member to sign up for the newsletter. Anyone can sign up for the newsletter. We also share the booking links and information about opportunities um, that way. Uh, So thank you very much again to the panel. Thank you to everyone. And he's looking forward to a fabulous 2023. Keep on prop teching.